thank you so much. It is great to be here at Covenant College. I didn't realize you would get double credit if you come this afternoon. I know the house will now be packed, not because of me, but because of double credit for chapel. But it is great to be with you. I, I was telling uh, Derek Halverson just before we began today that this is my first time on campus, even though I know so much about Covenant College and have interacted with so many folks associated with Covenant College before today. So I'm glad I got to be able to be here on a beautiful day and see all the vistas and scenes. And this is a great spot, really beautiful place, a real privilege you have to be here and study here. Let me also just give you greetings from Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, where I am. In fact, I brought with me one of your own alums. Nate Grolsema is with me here from RTS Charlotte. And Nate, yeah, give applause for him. Nate is about to graduate from RTS Charlotte in May, and we just hired him as our new director of admissions. And so when I found out I was coming to do the Imago Day lectures, I said, Nate, you got to come along. Everyone's going to want to see you more than they want to see me anyway. Um, so I'm glad he's here. Uh, he's going to be in the back afterwards, right by the RTS table out there. If you want to learn more about what's going on at RTS, I know he'd love to tell you. I know some of you are thinking about seminary, and if so, we'd love to chat with you about that. And I'm so glad Nate could join me while I'm here for these special lectures. Uh, as, as was mentioned in, in the introduction, the theme in my time with you over these two days is really going to be centered on biblical authority. It's going to be centered on this question of why we believe what we believe. And as you'll see in a moment, today I want to talk just very broadly about a particular passage of scripture that I think frames that for us. But for those of you who want to go deeper, I am speaking again at 4 today and then tomorrow at 11. And I hope you'll come out if you want to dive deeper into some of the more academic side of things. But for today we, just, today, we just want to look at what God has to say to us in his word. So let's do that. If you have your Bibles or maybe your phones, 1 Corinthians 1.18 is where we are this morning. One short verse I want to spend our time thinking about and dwelling on with you as we think about these uh, Imago Day lectures over the next day and a half. This is a well-known passage. It's a passage you've heard many, many times. It's a passage that I think, though, in our current cultural moment, maybe has as much relevance as it's ever had. So let's listen to what God has to say to us in this one short verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Let me pray as we ask the Lord to bless our thoughts on this passage. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word. And Lord, the clarity in it that the great good news of the gospel is not always well received. In fact, many times regarded as foolishness. Lord, help us to grasp that truth today. Lord, help us to understand better how we can live as faithful Christians in the middle of a hostile world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So whether you've been a Christian for 10 weeks or 10 years, there's something you already know about the Christian life, and that is it's not easy being a Christian in today's world. In fact, you just have to look around a little bit and you realize that as Christians are always filled, pushed and pulled this way and that way as the world tries to grab a hold of us and take us down different paths we know we shouldn't be on, not just morally, but also intellectually. Often as a result, we feel sort of like misfits, out of place, on the margins, like we 
don't belong, and the world finds lots of opportunities to mock and ridicule the Christian faith. But of all the things that are difficult about being in the world today, and of all the criticisms we get, there's probably one that stands out above most of the rest, one that you feel a lot, and that I certainly feel a lot in my own area, and that is the way that Christianity is viewed as intellectually deficient. It's simply academically bankrupt. It has no real cognitive persuasion. It doesn't make sense in the minds of those who hear it. They find it to be silly and ridiculous. And they come to you and I as Christians and they say, you know, you Christians really believe a lot of really difficult things. In fact, it doesn't take much reflection even here this morning in chapel to think about the things that we believe and how hard it might be for other people to believe them. We believe in an invisible God you can't see or empirically prove, at least in the way the world wants us to. We believe in a world of spiritual beings and angels and demons. We believe in miraculous interventions where axe heads can float and seas can be parted and the sun can stop in the middle of the sky. We believe that demons can be exercised and diseases can be healed and people can rise from the dead. And then beyond this, we have a moral view that our worldviews is outdated and archaic and antiquated and all-around unattainable and certainly a thing of the past and beyond that not just sort of a bizarre moral code but a moral code that our world views as sort of narrow-minded and offensive and dogmatic and us believing that we're right and everyone else is wrong. Now I suppose as we hear that long laundry list this morning we're thinking to ourselves why do we believe all that? Or maybe the better question this morning is, why is it that so many other people don't? In fact, that's really the intellectual question, isn't it? We believe something is true, the things we believe about Christianity, and we're like, well, why is it that sometimes it seems like the smartest people in the world, what you might call the intellectual elites out there, are the very ones who don't believe Christianity? Now, if you've had that question in your mind, and to some extent we all do, don't we? That's the very question the Corinthians were facing when Paul wrote this singular verse. You see, Corinth was quite the intellectual center in the ancient Greco-Roman world, not far from Athens. They actually, like the Athenians, prided themselves on having the latest, greatest philosophies and thinkers in their midst, and they would take great pride in adopting the wisdom of the world. And it wasn't long before Christianity made it to Corinth, and a church grew up, and Paul writes to that church in this letter, but something began to happen in Corinth. The Christians began to look around and realize, wait a second, this Christianity thing has reached Corinth, but why is it, Paul, that none of the intellectual elites are following Christ? Why is it that we have just this little band of believers in the midst of what looks like this juggernaut of academic minds out there, and none of the academic minds seem to find Christianity as something that makes sense? Why is that? Why does it seem like it's the smartest people in the world who don't believe? Paul writes this one verse, in fact, this whole passage to answer that question. So what I want to do as we launch this sort of time together over the next couple days is just ponder for a moment what Paul wants to do with us to help us navigate a hostile world, a world that regards the gospel as foolishness. Now, he makes several adjustments here in this passage, or better put, he wants us to make several adjustments in our, in our way of, of living the Christian life. And I just want to walk through a few of those quickly with you 
this morning as we unpack this passage. And we'll just see he has three of those here. Let's just take these one at a time. First adjustment in this passage is he wants to adjust our expectations. He wants us to adjust our expectations. And in fact, he wants to remind us that barring the work of God's Spirit, Christianity will always look foolish in the minds of the non-Christian world. Look at verse 18 once again in your passage. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Right out of the gate, Paul, in effect, wants to challenge our expectations, what we think would happen or should happen when someone is confronted with the gospel message. And truth be told, what Paul is getting at here is he's actually challenging one of those deeply held assumptions in our mind that we don't even know is there. In fact, I want to suggest to you that we all have a belief that we don't even realize we have that actually conditions the way we think about the world. It's tucked way, way back in our minds, so deep, in fact, we never really reflect on it. And that belief is basically this. We think that if something is true, most people will believe it. We do. We have that belief in our head. We, we think if something is true, most people will believe it, and therefore we think that if most people believe something, that it's probably very likely to be true. And we have that belief in the back of our mind, and verse 18, in effect, is challenging it because Paul is saying if you have that belief, that's going to land you in a really difficult quandary because as soon as you realize most people don't believe the gospel, you're going to conclude that therefore the gospel isn't true. In fact, I see this all the time in my field. I work in the area of biblical scholarship and sort of the reliability of the Bible, and one of the most common questions I get I go all over the place and speak at different places, just like here at Covenant College. And when I speak, one of the most common questions I get is, if, is this. Is if the Bible is true, then why is it that most secular scholars reject it? If the Bible is true, why don't more people believe it? But you realize, hidden behind that question is a, is a deeper assumption that if something is true, most people will believe it. But Paul is saying that's exactly what is not the case here. Don't think for a moment that your expectations are that someone just needs more information and they'll agree with you that Christianity is true. No, Paul wants you to realize that people are already hardwired, if you will, against the Christian faith. Why? Because they're not born as neutral people. They're not born with a clean slate. They're not just open, if you will, to whatever is true in the world. In one sense, they've already decided what's true based on their fallen hearts. So there's a sense here which Paul is saying, unless God intervenes, unless God opens their minds, people will always regard Christianity as foolish. Put it differently, the fact that Christianity is rejected by so many is not evidence against Christianity. It's actually exactly what you would expect if Christianity were true. That's exactly what your expectations ought to be. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world to which Paul is writing... It's hard for us to wrap our minds around how ridiculous Christianity would have seemed to them. To realize that in the Greco-Roman world, a, a crucified individual was the height of shame and humiliation. You see, in our minds, we think the crucifixion's number one goal in the Greco-Roman world was to inflict pain. Now, certainly crucifixion inflicted a lot of pain. No, make no mistake about it. It may have been one of the most painful tortures in the angel world, but that actually was not the main purpose of crucifixion. The main purpose of crucifixion was, was humiliation. It was embarrassment. It was scorn. 
It was to put on display for a whole world how shameful this person must be to hang on a cross. And if you think about it, in Corinth, in the Greco-Roman world, Christians were worshiping a crucified Savior, and the Romans were like, are you kidding me? That is the most absurd thing I can possibly imagine. A number of years ago, they had been doing archaeological excavations outside the city of Rome. In my little world, I get to hear about these things from time to time. And one particular story fascinated me because it actually captures what this text is about. A number of years ago, they uncovered a Roman wall outside of the city that was probably dated the second, third century after Christ. And on this wall, they, as they uncovered it, they began to realize someone had made a drawing. Someone had put, effectively, graffiti on the wall. So if you think people drawing on walls is a modern thing, think again, right? People have been drawing on walls for thousands of years. And as they uncovered this graffiti on the wall, they realized it was actually a picture that someone had drew of someone hanging on a cross. But the person who was hanging on the cross had a head of a donkey. And in the ancient Roman world, that was a sign of mockery. And so you have a picture of someone hanging on the cross with the head of a donkey, and at the base of the cross is another figure bowing down in worship. And someone had written on the wall in Greek, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexamenos is just the Greek word for Alex. It's a name. Effectively, someone had written graffiti on a wall mocking this ancient person named Alex and said, look at Alex worshiping his God. This, this crucified man on a cross with the head of a donkey. How utterly ridiculous and silly that is. Effectively, what Paul is saying here is, don't you realize that when you present the gospel to someone, they already have a religion. They've already made their mind up. They've already decided what the world should be like, and what you tell them is not what they want it to be. Ever wonder what a religion would look like if man were to make it up? If you were to sit down with someone and say, create your own religion, I wonder what they would say. I would imagine it would be something like this. It would probably be a religion that would tell a person that he's probably okay just the way he is. If man were to make up a religion, it would be a religion where God doesn't really need to be that involved in their lives. They don't really need that much from God. They can pretty much figure things out on their own. If man were to make up a religion, it would be a religion where there's no sin, no wrath, no judgment, no hell. If man were to make up a religion, and you'd probably have a God that was pretty laid back and relaxed about things and just wants you to just find out whatever lifestyle suits you best and to live it out. If man were to make up a religion, it would be a religion where God doesn't really do the saving, but man ultimately saves himself. If man were to make up a religion, it would look nothing like Christianity. Paul's first point here is very simple. What were you expecting, Corinthians, when the gospel came here? Unless God intervenes by his spirit, the non-Christian will always think it makes no sense. But here's the point. The rejection of Christianity by the world out there, says Paul, has nothing to do with whether it's true. That's the one thing you can't conclude from it. That simply because it's seen as foolish, that's not a reason to think it's true, because that's exactly what Christianity expects. So Paul's first adjustment is just in our expectations. What do you really think is going to happen in this hostile world? But he's got a second adjustment I want to point out in this passage today. He wants to just not 
only adjust our expectations, but also our thinking. He wants to adjust our minds. He wants us to realize that although Christianity looks foolish in the eyes of the world, it's actually non-Christian thinking that's got the intellectual problems. It's actually non-Christian thinking that's ultimately the foolish option. I think Paul in this passage, in some sense, anticipates uh, a misunderstanding. And by the way, this can be a misunderstanding we have. Paul just got finished saying to his audience that Christianity is foolish to those who are perishing. It's folly. And he imagines that some people in his audience might think, oh, so I guess Christianity is just a foolish religion. And I guess it's just kind of silly, but I guess it's kind of all we've got. And since it's all we've got, I guess I'm just going to stick my head down and just bear it out and just say, well, I know it's silly. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it's got no real intellectual merits, but I guess it's working for me. And by the way, a lot of people think of religion that way. It doesn't really matter whether it's true. What matters is whether it works. But Paul stops in the second point and says, hold, hold on a second. You didn't misunderstand me, did you? You, di- you didn't think for a moment that I was saying that Christianity was actually foolish. No, Paul is saying there's a paradox here. Christianity looks foolish, but the paradox is that even though it looks foolish, it's actually non-Christian thinking that ends up being intellectually problematic. Actually, Christian thinking makes sense. Christian thinking is intellectually defensible. It's robust. You can actually make sense out of the world from it. Now, we need this as much as any other point this morning because there's certain segments of Christianity today that are very anti-intellectual. And one of the things I appreciate about Covenant College and even the Mago Day lectures is that you've, you've shown here that you want to engage in the truth of Christianity robustly with not just your hearts but also your minds. But many people are thinking, all that matters is how I feel. All that matters is whether it works for me. And it doesn't matter if it's really true or intellectually sound. And Paul says, hold, hold, hold it right there. Christianity is intellectually sound. And in fact, it's non-Christian thinking that's got all the problems I didn't read this verse earlier, but Paul picks up on this theme later in the passage, where in one sense he says, God is more wise than any scholar that you can trot out. Here's what he says in verse 20. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It's almost like Paul is saying, hey, you know, all those intellectual elites you're so impressed with in Corinth, bring them on. All of them. All those people that you're so enamored with in terms of their intellectual sophistication, set them up against the mind of God himself and you will see where things really stand. Now you may wonder, what what exactly is Paul's main complaint here about non-Christian thinking? I wish we had time to unpack this more fully, we don't, but I'm just going to narrow it down to the nub of it here. Paul's main complaint about non-Christian thinking whether it's in Corinth or anywhere else, is simply this. Why would you trust someone's finite, fallen human mind when they tell you the way the world works, when you could be relying on the very mind of God? Paul's going to the Corinthians and saying, okay, so let me get this straight. You're really impressed with these, these intellectual thinkers in your day, but don't you realize they are, they are limited, they are finite, they are fallen, they are fallible. You have them on the one side and you have God's own wisdom on the other side. Bring them all on. Why would you choose this one over that one? To sort of put this in sort of terms I think we can all grasp more plainly, just think for a moment about the last time you had a conversation with your non-Christian friend. I imagine it's a conversation that you, you and, and that person disagreed over many, many things. 
But have you ever noticed in conversations with your non-Christian friends how many grand sweeping truth claims they make? It's remarkable. They'll tell you whether there's a God or not, and they'll tell you if there is a God, what he's like, and they'll tell you what God would do or wouldn't do, what God prefers or doesn't prefer. They'll tell you if there's a heaven or there's a hell, and how you get there or how you don't, or whether they even exist, and what's right and what's wrong, and how the world ought to be and how religion works. And Paul would come to that person, just as we should, and ask one simple question, how do you know any of that? How do these Corinthian philosophers know what God would do or wouldn't do and what he's like and isn't like and what he prefers or doesn't prefer? All they have are their finite, fallen human minds. And this is exactly what makes Christianity different. Christians, in the core of the Christian claim, is that we have access to something beyond the finite, fallible human mind. We have access to God's own mind in his word. In fact, that's what I'll be talking about in my other lectures while I'm with you is that the scriptures, we have good reasons to think, are God's own revelation. Now, of course, our non-Christian friend will say, well, I don't believe the Bible is the word of God, but he's missing the point. The point isn't whether he believes the Bible is the word of God. The question is, who has a better grounds for making grand sweeping truth claims? Someone who has only their finite fallen mind, or at least someone who purports to have divine revelation. Only one of those two people has any grounds at all for making grand sweeping truth claims. Yes, Christians make grand sweeping truth claims, but not on the basis of our own opinion on the basis of God's own word. Now that adjustment we really need to hear today. And I trust that you're getting that. I know you're getting that here at Covenant College, that God's word is intellectually satisfying. It's true. It's not merely useful. It's not merely effective. It is true in all that it says. But Paul has one final adjustment to make in this passage, and this might be the most important one. He adjusts our expectations he adjusts our minds. Thirdly, he wants us to adjust our attitude. He wants us to realize that Christianity, if understood rightly, naturally leads to humility. Naturally leads to intellectual humility. You see, I think Paul recognizes there's another danger here. As soon as he gets finished saying that the Christian worldview makes more sense than the non-Christian worldview, as soon as he makes the statement that non-Christian thinking is foolish, he knows there's another danger. You know what that danger is? Intellectual pride. Where he imagines those Corinthian Christians could sort of stick their chest out and their head up and go, hey, we're awesome because we figured this out. We're, we're right because we're smarter than other people. And Paul, in one sense, wants to stop them there and go, hold on a second. Yes, Christianity is true. Yes, Christianity makes more sense. But don't think for a moment that you're a Christian because you're smarter than other people. In fact, what I love elsewhere in this passage, and this is one of those times where Paul sort of lays it out there, he goes, you know how I know that you're not a Christian because of how smart you are, you Corinthians? Because you're not very smart. In fact, he says later, this is stunning, he says, consider yourselves, brothers, not many of you were wise. Ouch. Paul, in one sense, is saying, you know how I know that people don't become Christians because they're so smart? Because you're not very smart, and it's never about that in the first place. If you come to Christ, if you come to believe in Christianity, there's no room for intellectual pride because the only reason you're there is by God's grace. But here's the big payoff of this. It's rather stunning. If Paul's correct here, and we believe he is, then that reveals something rather amazing. It shows that you can be absolutely certain about what you believe and absolutely humble at the same time. You can be both. 
You know why that's so stunning? Because our world says you can't be. You ever notice how our world defines humility as uncertainty? That's actually the world's definition of humility. That's why they don't think Christians are humble, because they think to be humble, you have to walk around all the time saying, well, I don't know, well, who knows, and who knows what's right? You throw your hands up in the air and sort of pretend like you can't be certain about anything at all, but that's not the Bible's definition of humility. What we see in this passage is you can be absolutely humble because God is the one who revealed it to you, and you can be absolutely certain because God is the one who revealed it to you. And you can be both at the same time. Do not take the world's beliefs and really their intellectual conviction that you have to give up your certainty to be humble. No, you can have absolutely certain that Christianity is true, and you can be absolutely humble and meek about it. Why? Because God is the one who's revealed it by grace. Paul says, therefore, that if you're a believer, you need to be not only certain of the truth of Christianity, but certain that you're there by grace. Only there because God has opened your eyes to see. Now those are three adjustments today that we all need to hear. We adjust our expectations and realize that the world is not a blank slate that's just waiting to hear the truth of the gospel. No, they already have a view and it's only God's grace that overcomes it. We adjust our minds and realize that it's actually Christianity that's intellectually defensible. And then thirdly, make sure we approach it with a humble attitude. That Roman wall I mentioned earlier, what's interesting about that excavation is that they actually kept uncovering the wall further and further and bearing down the layers. And they realized that although the first person had mocked this Christian named Aleximenos by saying, Aleximenos worships his God, apparently someone else had written a response. And as they uncovered the wall, they realized someone afterwards had come in in Greek and written a rebuttal. And that rebuttal was simply this. Alexa Menos is faithful. Alexa Menos is faithful. And that, I think, sums it all up. As we live in a hostile world today, God is not asking us to be the smartest people. He's not asking us to all go get PhDs. But he is asking us to be faithful. Faithful in the midst of opposition and persecution. Utterly convinced that the gospel is true. And utterly humble about it at the same time because it's all by grace. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that we have a hard time living in a hostile world. It is not easy, it is hard, it is complicated, and Lord, we admit that we have taken the bait and have tried to be less certain in order to be more humble. But Lord, help us today to trust your word, revealed plainly, absolutely true, but absolutely we get it by grace, and we can be absolutely humble. Lord, thank you for that grace in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.